Good morning. So this morning's readings is Roman chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and uh, let me add my welcome to Phil's. Um, It's great to be with you today, and uh, especially if you're new, then a particular warm welcome to you. Would you mind keeping your Bibles open? Because the passage that we're working through today is quite dense, and a little bit technical in places, so you'll definitely need to refer to that because I'm not going to put it on the screen. So please do keep it open. Um, Great. Uh, Just to start off lightly this morning, I thought I'd take you through a little walk through history's hall of mass murdering fame, or at least uh, totalitarian rulers. Starting off on the right, uh, anyone know? Pol Pot. He's, uh, he goes down in history for killing between one and a half and three million Cambodians. Hardly really worth a mention on the scale compared to some of our other friends. Adolf Hitler, who's responsible for six million Jews as far as we know. Joseph Stalin topping Adolf Hitler with six to nine million Russians and the star of the show, Mao Zedong, who's responsible for leading 45 million of his own compatriots to the grave. Now, who would like to write their dating profiles? No, I have a more serious question. Who could forgive such people? Could God forgive such people? That's the question we're going to be asking today. 
if God could forgive such people, how could it possibly be so that he does so righteously? How could God not compromise his own standards of justice by just saying, it's okay, you're forgiven for 45 million people or less? That's a great dilemma. And it's a big dilemma, dilemma in the Bible. How can the God who is called just, justly forgive people who are not just? As someone else has said, how can God say I'm right when I'm wrong and still be right when he says so? So the passage we're looking at today has been called by some people, including Martin Luther, as the most important passage in the whole Bible. One person's called it the most important few sentences ever written in the history of the world. Because in these few sentences, we find out how it is that God can forgive people like these and still be just when he does so. You'll see the great dilemma there. How does God declare anyone who has sinned to be righteous and how can he do so and still be just himself? So the key idea in this passage, and I've highlighted the two most common words there, justification by faith. That is the core of the Protestant faith. Those two words are a little bit technical. So justification and righteousness come from the same word in Greek. And that means that God declares someone right with him. God says, you meet my standards for righteousness. And God legally declares that person right, innocent, more than innocent, possessing positive righteousness. And according to this passage, God does that for us by faith. That is We don't have to do anything, we just have to believe God. And he says, if you do that, you're right with me. That's the key passage, the key idea of this passage today. And it's addressed to Jews because you can see it's talking a lot about the law. So the the Jews had thought that the law was the route to righteousness. God gave them the law through Moses and said, do it. And they imagined that if anyone could perfectly obey the law, that they would be declared righteous by God. This passage is addressing Jews who have just been told that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by obeying the law. Now he's saying there is a way to be called to be declared righteous apart from the law. Now, big butts are not normally considered a desirable thing. But in the Bible, there are some beautiful big butts, and this is the biggest of them all. Because, as we saw the last three chapters of Romans, Paul has been saying, the wrath of God is revealed against all mankind for their wickedness. And he's been hammering and hammering and hammering to that that point until we come to the place of desperation where we say, how can we escape the wrath of God? And then this passage declares in those two big, beautiful words, but now a righteousness from God is revealed by faith. 
So our first point from the first section today, 21 to 24, is this. God justifies sinners by faith in Jesus. Now, those words are easy to say, but the meaning is, as I say, very controversial. To justify is a legal declaration. It is for God to say, that person is as good as though they have never sinned. In fact, he says, they're as good as I am. They have the righteousness of God. He says in verse 21 that it's apart from the law. That means it's totally disconnected from any moral or religious uh, effort, performance. It's got nothing to do with keeping God's law. Even though in the law there was this kind of theoretical promise that if you did obey the law perfectly, you would be declared righteous. But of course, the number of people who did that is one, Jesus himself. So for the Jews, this was an extraordinary declaration. How can you say that people are right with God apart from the law? Well, he says in verse 21, indeed the law and the prophets, that shorthand for the Old Testament, testify. So the whole Old Testament has been pointing to this righteousness by faith from the beginning all the way up until Jesus. In the Passover, the people of Israel were not harmed if they painted the blood of a, of a lamb over their doors. That's pointing straight to this righteousness through faith in Jesus. In the temple, they had to spill the blood of a, of a lamb on the Day of Atonement and on the covenant, uh, Ark of the Covenant. That's again pointing to, the, to this righteousness through Jesus. And there's many other places in the Old Testament which point forward to this righteousness by faith in Jesus. And verse 22, he declares this outrageous fact. This is not a B-grade righteousness. This is the righteousness of God given to us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are as righteous as God is, no less. Not as some cults say that Jesus brings you back to the zero mark and from there you can start again. This isn't just a reset. This is God reversing your status from guilty to righteous by faith. And in verse 22 he says, it's to all who believe because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely as a gift through the redemption that came by Jesus. To fall short of the glory of God is a hint at our failure to be what we were created to be. We were created to mirror the glory of God. People should look at us and go, wow, I see God through you and the way that you live, the way that you treat other people. That's what God created us, as his image. But unfortunately, what people see when they look at us is not the glory of God, is it? They see all manner of other things that detract from the glory of God, that conceal the glory of God, that defile the name of God. That's all of us, says Paul. Not one exception in this room, in this suburb, in this country, in this universe. All people are in that same situation. And all are justified for free by Jesus Christ. There's no category, there's no possible way of becoming right with God by some ulterior detour route around Jesus. 
This is the only way that God declares people righteous. And he says, it's for free, as a gift. There is nothing you can do and nothing you need to do except trust God. Last year, I bought a 2013 diesel Mazda 6. Uh, the relevance of this picture will become apparent shortly. I, uh, I had been told that diesels were very reliable and one didn't need to be too careful about the service interval. I was wrong. My diesel Mazda 6 needed the oil changed every 10,000 very strictly. Otherwise, the oil level got higher and higher and higher until the engine failed. And that happened to me. So I took it to Mazda and they said, look, we'll write to head office and see what we can do for you. Of course, it wasn't under warranty because it's a 2013 model. A month or so later, they called me up and said, Mazda have agreed to give you a free engine. I thought, wow, I certainly didn't see that coming. I had no grounds to demand anything from Mazda. I was out of warranty and I'd bought it not from Mazda. And they gave me a free engine and a turbo while they were at it. They said, oh, the old turbo didn't fit, so we threw that in as well. There you go, pick it up on Thursday. I couldn't believe it. Imagine being given something that valuable for free. I went around singing and dancing and telling everyone about Mazda and how great they were. They just gave me a free engine. Then it had another problem, so eventually I sold it. But for that brief window, I was in love with Mazda. But unlike Mazda, I was, un unlike God, well, I wasn't an enemy of Mazda at the time when they gave me that engine. Romans says, while we were enemies of God, he said, have my righteousness as a gift for free. Is there anything worth more than God's righteousness? No. And God gives it to us for free as a gift. If you believe in Jesus and don't try to earn it yourself, then God says, it's yours. By faith. Now, second point. How can God do that justly? And our second point is that God's way of justifying sinners is itself just? And this is the big question. And Paul's answer is, well, you need to look at the way that God did this. How did God declare right, sinners like us to be righteous? The first thing he says is in verse 25, that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, this is using temple language. If you go back to the Old Testament temple, the priest used to bring a sacrifice and spill its blood in the Holy of Holies and that blood was being spilt as a sacrifice. Instead of the people outside, the lamb died. And of course that was pointing to Jesus. But the different thing about this situation is this, this is not a human bringing a sacrifice and, and asking God to forgive them. This is God presenting Jesus as a sacrifice. And it's the same, very same word here as the mercy seat. I don't know if you know the, the mercy seat, but in the, in the Holy of Holies, there was an Ark of the Covenant and there was a table above that Ark with two cherubim facing each other. And that was the place where the blood was sprinkled to take away 
the anger of God at the sin of Israel. And according to Romans, God presented the blood of Jesus to himself as a sacrifice of atonement to take away his wrath. Now, by his blood there, of course, in some translations, it has faith in his blood, which would be a bit strange. The blood is connected with the atonement, isn't it? With the offering of that sacrifice. It was Jesus' blood that was spilt, which took away the wrath of God. That's why uh, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that blood is applied to us through faith, he says in the same section, trusting that when God offered Jesus as a sacrifice to propitiate himself, to atone for sin, that that was sufficient. And he says in verse 26 that God did this to demonstrate his justice because there was a question mark over God's justice because he says throughout history God had passed over many sins committed beforehand and in God's forbearance he had not punished them that left a question mark over God's justice how did God forgive so many people so many sins so many times and still be just and the answer is because now in Christ God himself pays the penalty If I give my son a mobile phone to use for a day and he smashes it and I forgive him, who pays? Not him. Me. I have to buy a new phone. When God forgives sin, who pays? God pays. That's the only way that sin can justly be forgiven. And the price, the penalty for sin is death. Hence, God must become a man to suffer death in place of sinners who who ought to die. That's how God can justly be the justifier of sinners because he himself pays the right penalty for the sins that we deserve. God is not at all like Marcus Enfield. Some of you may know this man. He was a federal court judge, the inaugural president of the Human Rights and and Equal Opportunity Commission. But in 2006, he was given a $77 speeding ticket for doing 10 kilometres over the limit. Now, as a judge, of course, he represents the law and righteousness. But instead of paying the $77, he appealed the ticket and said that somebody else was driving. However, a journalist looked up the name of the person that he said was driving and found that they had already died a few years earlier. So he was arrested, stripped of his honours, and sent to prison to three years for perjury. That is the opposite of God. Because although Marcus Enfield was a judge... He wasn't willing to uphold the standards of his own failure to obey the law. He wasn't even willing to pay $77 for a speeding fine that he rightly ought to have paid. But God was willing to suffer death 
for us in order to be right and make us righteous. God, of course, had done nothing wrong, the opposite of Marcus Enfield. But so just is God that he said the only way for us to be forgiven is for God himself to take away our sins. And that's what he did on the cross. He received the penalty that is due for our sins, that we may rightly be called free of God's condemnation. That's why in 1 John 9, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How can, yeah, because he's already paid the price. That's why God can forgive sins justly. And that's, this is great pastoral value for you or me or anyone who's struggling with a guilty conscience. I've sinned again and again and again. Confess your sins and cling to the justice of God. God must forgive you because he has promised and paid the price for your sins. You know, we're used to thinking of the cross as a picture of God's love, and that's right. But it's only a picture of God's love if the cross does something. You know, the Bible doesn't say, oh, God so loved the world that Jesus Christ died. That doesn't do anything. No, God so loved the world that Jesus Christ died for us. His death took away the wrath of God and gave us, in in place of God's wrath, his righteousness. That's why the cross is an act of love, because it rescues us from God's wrath. Thirdly, being justified by faith prohibits pride. It did strike me as a bit odd that Paul would suddenly start talking about boasting uh, in this section. Where then is boasting? Um, Why does this come up here, right here, right now? Well, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, this is right, actually. Because in the church in Rome, there were some people who seemed, thought that they were a bit superior than others. There were Gentiles and there were Jews And the Gentiles thought they were a bit superior because they were free of the law. And the Jews thought they were a bit superior because they had the law. And each of them were kind of looking down on the other, thinking, yeah, I'm better than you. Well, what Paul has just said to us prohibits that attitude. Faith prohibits pride because faith is by definition non-achievement. There's nothing about faith which um, permits you to, to think that you did anything. The whole idea of faith is putting your confidence in what God has done and not in yourself. When I have performance review meetings at work, I don't stand up and boast about all my failures. No, that's, the <laughs> that's what our faith is. Our faith is... Despite all my failures, my confidence is in God. And I know the same is true for you. So who am I to think that I'm superior to you? Paul presses the Jews at this point. Look, is God the God of Jews only in verse 29? No, of course. God is the God of Gentiles too. And he says in verse 
29. Um, there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. There's one God who is just. He sees everyone the same way as sinners and he justifies and forgives everyone in precisely the same way, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Greek, black or white, young or old, Noosa or not Noosa, whatever. There are no categories when it comes to justification by faith. And finally, he says, well, that doesn't, of course, mean that we throw the law out. Do we nullify the law by this faith? He says, no, of course not. It doesn't mean that we obey the law, but he says we continue to uphold the law. There's the standard. The fact that I don't keep that standard does not mean that I just throw it away. The fact that I don't keep that standard drives me to faith in Christ. And that's the law's job, as Martin Luther said. The law drives us to faith in Christ. When we look into the Jewish law, we see the Jews' failure and our own and we flee to Christ for righteousness and forgiveness. That's why we don't throw the law away. It still works. When you read the law, you can still find the righteousness of God written there in black and white, and you can still see, by contrast, your own failure to be the sort of person that God has designed you to be. And you can still flee to Christ and put your confidence in him. Faith is non-performance. I'd like to introduce you to Rick and Dick Hoyt. Uh, Rick is still alive, but Dick has passed away now. He died in 2021. But Rick, his son, had cerebral palsy. Uh, Rather than put his son in a home, Dick decided he would push him in a wheelchair in a marathon. And uh, Rick loved it so much that Dick did it again and again and again. 32 marathons he completed with Rick sitting in the chair enjoying the view and crossing the line thanks to his father. Now I can tell you how many marathons Rick Hoyt would have completed without his father. Zero of course. But he is us. We're the spiritual version of Rick Hoyt. Utterly paralyzed and utterly unable to achieve any form of righteousness before God, but completely pushed over the line every single time by Jesus Christ. All we do is sit in the chair and enjoy the view as God crosses the line for us. Can Rick boast about his performance as an athlete? No, but he can sure boast about his dad. There's one way of telling if someone is trusting in Jesus or not. It's real easy. Are they proud or are they humble? Trusting in Jesus makes you humble. Because it's the definition of non-confidence, non-performance, non-achievement. I have nothing to boast in except the goodness, the kindness, the justice of God who makes me righteous through faith.
I'd like to take you on another little Hall of Fame tour. This person, it could be said, is guilty of maybe 45, maybe more, million lustful thoughts. Six to nine million covetous desires, six million hostile intentions, at least one and a half million bad hair choices, (laughs) just to name a fraction of my sins. How could this person like that Hall of Fame before, how could this person be forgiven by God rightly, justly? Only one way, by the blood which Jesus offered, which God presented as a sacrifice of atonement. Now that person has the righteousness of God by faith. Nothing less. What about you if I was to put your photo here and your sins in the boxes beneath. How could you become right, righteous with God exactly the same way as me? Through faith in the blood of Jesus spilt for the atonement of your sins. One of my favourite hymns, and I'll close with this, is And Can It Be? which is a rhetorical question in which the, uh, the, the hymnist asks all these questions. But he ends with this, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own.